Uh, hello, this is your anime corner for the week. Uh, Gareth is currently busy uh, in the UK dealing with the vote on whether or not England should be sunk directly beneath the sea and returned to the welcoming hands of Poseidon. And uh, as as foretold in the ancient Black Tome of Prophecy, the minute that he was uh, that he dropped his guard, I turned his pride and beauty death sentence into an anime podcast. make sure to weave it on up here as fully as possible before he gets back. We want to burn uh, all of his hard work to the ground and really punish him for bringing me on board. Uh, with me, I have my friend uh, Peter. Uh, Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm I'm Peter, and I am a recovering tight moon addict. Uh, he he's uh, one of the ones who helped step me into to anime. Um, so before we get into that, we I'm very sorry though. for that. Yeah, you you should be. You you poisoned me. Um, I do, to be fair, it's 2019, I like being poisoned. Uh, I've embraced it. Um, so before we get into anime, we want to deal with some news. Our government is bad, uh, but at least it's not working anymore. Um, as of almost a month now, a, uh, a budget that... Uh, Let's let's get some details here. It's a discretionary budget, which means that it didn't it didn't cover all of the government. It just covered a couple a uh, couple different departments. Uh, passed in the House, and then it passed in the Senate, uh, one hundred to zero. Uh, literally, everyone showed up, everyone voted, and everyone voted yes. And then the president didn't sign it because it included no money for his uh, giant 2,000 long, 2,000 mile long monument to racism. Um, as of today, uh, a second budget was passed by the House and has more than enough Republican support in the Senate to pass. And Mitch McConnell would not call the vote for it um, because he's a dickhead turkey fucker uh, that. Uh, I allegedly hope gets killed. Now, that's allegedly. I can say safely that I don't actually feel that way. This is a nasty rumor. Uh, it's, it's a horrible rumor being spread that I <laughs> hope Mitch McConnell dies. 
just yes. a really a really rude thing. Who would, who would ever say me. such a thing about you? Yeah, it's just and it you're... seems. <laughs> I love uh, America. I love eagles. I love eagles, Peter. Peter, I I am aware of your your love of eagles. I Look, love eagles. Freedom isn't free. It free- takes passing a budget resolution freedom to get is, anything done. Freedom is an eagle, and I love eagle. <laughs> um, hopefully Trump dies. So on to anime. Uh, my my background uh, my background in anime. I, I want to cover that quick because obviously this is nominally a literary fiction podcast, and we talk about a bunch of things, but. I do want to make it clear the the relevance there. So when I was growing up, it was sort of the uh, the key time of Dragon Ball Z and uh, reruns of the initial um, dub of Evangelion. Or not dub? Was it a dub or a sub of Evangelion? I think it um, probably would have been the probably would have been the dub that uh, I was playing at that point. We're like replaying on HBO sometimes, mm-hmm. and so got exposed. Uh, got exposed to things. Um, and, you know, obviously I like that stuff. I think everyone of a certain age uh, watched a lot of Dragon Ball Z. I, that, that didn't seem to escape anyone. Even if you didn't like it, you watched a shitload of it. Um, also, if you don't like Goku, I will kill you. Uh, uh, and, and likewise, you know, Gundam Wing pops up. Everyone sort of watches a ton of that if they're in a certain demographic, even if they don't like it all that much. Um, and it was right about there that I sort of personally diverged. I had certain stuff that I loved, like I loved Akira, uh, still do, loved Evangelion, um, loved Cowboy Bebop and Serial Experiment Lane and stuff like that. But most of the stuff that my peers were into, they were starting to get into like, uh, a bit of Inuyasha, Naruto was just starting up in America, um. Uh, Adult Swim was going on, and they were playing some shows that I thought were interesting, like Fooly Cooly and Paranoia Agent, and then a bunch of others that I thought were just sort of like, eh. I I was a bit more prissy about it then, but just sort of went, okay, well, that's not for me. And then I got more into, like, brainy, cerebral sci-fi and obscure literary novels and that kind of stuff, and I just sort of wrote it off for a bit. And then it was sometime in college that um, I met a mutual friend of ours and through him, I met you and we we're just sort of chatting in general. And, uh, you had brought up to me that you really liked, uh, anime. And this was at a time when you liked anime, uh, more than now, not that you actually it, like it any less, but that, you know, it, I was, I was engaged with the culture at a very, at a very deep <laughs> level at that, at that point in my life. I'll put that's, it that way. That's a really polite way to put it. Then again, I was a fedora <laughs> shithead. So, you know, I'm not, yeah, we, <laughs> so, it was know, a time in our lives. It sucks to be a young white man in that <laughs> you suck ass and you're totally yeah. unaware of it. Um, it's true. So, uh, that, uh, it, it still struck me, you know, we, we struck a, a bond pretty quick because Peter also, you know, likes, like me, he has 
uh, an English degree. He also focused on philosophy stuff. So similar kind of background. And then you, you have that, that touchiness where you're like, I like this shitty thing and I can't just say it's shitty. So I have to find a kernel in it that I tell people so that I don't yeah, have to acknowledge it. that I just did stupid. <laughs> I just like this dumb thing. Um, and, you know, there's there's a beauty to that kind of, like, youthful uh, pretension that can sometimes actually pull out a real element of something that someone else may turn their nose up at, even though they really shouldn't be. Um, so that caught my ear, and then, you know, I went back, and me and my college roommates downloaded a... I remember the show that brought us back was we downloaded the entirety of Ace of Tennis... Just on a whim of this is a 150 episode anime about boys playing tennis. And it's fucking incredible. It is. It's fucking tight. I love, I love that of all the reentry points you could have chosen, you chose like sports shonen. Like, <laughs> like the, the most, not even like super popular in the US. Just like. I wanted, so there's a parallel bit. Um, and so at the time I was really, really into Western comics as well. Like that's when I was starting to very seriously build my collection and go back and pick up old runs. Like that's when I was, uh, tracking down the old issues of Peter Milligan's run on shade, the changing man in the early nineties. I had just finished buying and reading through Sandman and, uh, was collecting Alan Moore's and Warren Ellis's stuff, especially their like small publisher work. And at some point, I read an essay by Grant Morrison that was about how much he loved manga and anime and the influence that he drew from them. Um, and one of the things that he brought up is that it's a quiet bit of Western chauvinism and even in a certain ways kind of racism that we privilege genre work and uh, comics and uh, cartooning work uh, from one culture but not another based more or less on purely aesthetic grounds mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when if we're if we're being honest with ourselves there isn't a massive internal difference between something like steven universe and something like uh uh, uh g gundam like yeah. there's there's some nominal difference there are differences but yeah. if you start if you're looking in general forms they're not they're not wildly yeah, there's different there's plenty of you know, the, 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 the differences, the, the nominal differences are going to be fairly equivalent to the differences between two slightly different genre, but also still say animation works that both come from America, yeah. right? You know, the difference between the Steven Universe and Voltron or something yeah. is going to be about the same, you know, and so uh, he, he brought up that there was a lot of um, a lot of really intriguing work and especially intriguing work that comes the, uh, the same reason why as you get like a literature degree, you're pushed by professors to read outside of whatever little bubble you come in liking. Because everyone who gets an English degree basically goes, I want to do it because I like books. And what you mean is I like a very specific kind of book yeah. and I'm not smart enough to recognize that I really like this one angle. And it's, and it's not that there's anything wrong with having an angle that, that you're better at or that you have a deeper understanding of, but, you know, they, they want you to have a firmer grasp yeah. of how does it knit together with the broader ecosystem of things. Mm. And, like, maybe where does it draw from certain elements that you may not have recognized because you were never exposed to where those things came from or where a, right. like, slight twist came from. 
And so, he, uh, and he brought up in that uh, in that essay that um, it was actually Western cartoons and Western comics were the foundation for manga and anime, specifically mm. with uh, Mickey Mouse. That comics and uh, cartoons of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck were uh, during the GI occupation, and even prior to that, like when yeah. Snow White got exported uh, to uh, to Japan and uh, early 1900s. Um, cartooning in general was just sort of moving around the world um, that they were massively impressed by that and they wanted to uh, design after it. Astro Boy sort of as the foundation for what we Mm -hmm. consider modern manga and anime drew specifically from Mickey Mouse in terms of trying to replicate the proportions of the larger eyes, the larger head, yeah, larger hands, I mean, smaller body. Lots of the even surviving today style that we would consider, you know, quote unquote anime style draws from a lot of the same sort of design principles as yeah. the early animation, possibly even more so than a lot of American animation does now. And we even uh, see a lot of the, a lot of the like uh, formal rigidity of, yeah. um, of, Western animation had to sort of relearn after uh, after like Japan took after say Looney Tunes proportions of the squish and yeah. squash. Um, yeah. And so there's always those same tensions are in Western animation as in uh, Japanese animation and manga of like some people mm-hmm. want to have more rigid uh, human proportions and some want to have more uh, uh I forget the term for it. It's like yeah. not morph, but D something. It's like you want to say cartoonish, but then that just seems kind of tautological because yeah. we're talking about cartoons. So uh, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, yeah, like distorted proportions. Things are things are softer and more flexible. Yeah. And you you smear and stretch when with animation, you're not as concerned with, uh, you know, it's like like that that one school of of uh, uh, American animation that was so common for so long where you could take any individual frame and it would look something like something you would get from maybe a comic panel or something, but in motion, everything often looked real, you know, uh, uh, artificial or puppeteered because yeah. of proportions and, and uh, angles were handled, you know, like I watched the, the, old Star Trek cartoon on that's on Netflix now, you know, or He-Man, right? Like, yeah, where it looks like an action figure that's getting moved around rather yeah. than it looks like it's a poorly rotoscoped children's action figure set yeah. rather than like a cartoon. Actually someone moving. <laughs> um, and so like the thrust there was, there's going to be some elements from uh, the same, roughly the same medium in different cultures than you'd get in your own, just because their cultural grounding, uh, one is going to lens the lessons they learned from other cultures, um, dealing with that medium slightly differently. And two, they're going to have their own background for what to bring into it. And also allowing yourself the surprise of the things that stay the same. Like, yeah. yeah. And so with that, I was like, okay, well, I'm a, uh, I'm kind of a, a know-it-all shithead, so I'm gonna dive right in. Like that's that's why I wanted Prince of Tennis. I was like, I don't want any of this <laughs> scrub tier entry level bullshit. I don't want Shonen. No, I want 
Well, it's a tennis. It's 150 episodes of fucking <laughs> middle school tennis. Yeah, I'm in, baby. Yeah. Um, just to get that, because uh, it's the same general thing of like approaching, say, like a literary discipline that you're not used to. Um, mm. It's sort of someone approaching from the perspective of I want to be of I know my tastes and I just want more of it who will try to go for the safer things. There's mm. nothing necessarily wrong with that. But when you have a taste for, say, literary structures and the formal structures of a medium or of an art form, then it's more exciting to be like, nah, give me the pure shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want none yeah, of that. Yeah. No, no, no pussyfooting. Jump right in the deep end and Fuck figure it out. Um, <laughs> and so and that it, like it got me hooked and that's where um mm -hmm. my joke to you for a while uh when we would talk privately about it was uh i love anime but i don't like any people who like anime and i don't want any suggestions from them about what to watch <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, it's like you know you get uh 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 when you when you were you know mentioning before you you know your the, your sort of uh, uh, original sort of tastes uh, going into to to anime pre college and stuff you know a lot of the stuff you named is like I feel like there's a list that everybody knows of of the anime that you suggest people who don't know anything about anime you know it's the, yeah. the Cow cowboy bebop fully coolly uh you know uh uh maybe ava if they're in a little bit deeper like the stuff that like you know it has some kind of artistic <laughs> merit that you, it's easy to argue for so you don't feel like a weeb suggesting it yeah and and you're it, it's got enough stuff in it that somebody who knows absolutely nothing about uh, uh, about the, the genre and its conventions can get into and enjoy. Yeah, uh, like there's but there's the, enough there's enough fireworks going on. It's similar to like the Macbeth problem in literature where like anyone yeah. who hasn't read English literature, you can hand the Macbeth and they're going to be like, oh, damn. Meanwhile, um, something of relatively equal esteem, something like Wittgenstein's Mistress, they're going to read it and go, I literally read 45 pages of a, a woman washing her underwear. What the fuck? And you're like, yeah. no, it's it's good. The, there's a reason for that but <laughs> it's, yeah, see, it's a big crystal and they're like you're crazy you've done too many of the, <laughs> the literature people drugs <laughs> yeah like and you know so it's 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 real easy to to you know make that sort of thing the go-to when when you know quote-unquote getting into something like anime but like you are kind of missing because like and and I feel like when we get into our main topic, uh, uh, I have I have things to say more <laughs> about this. But like you know, anime is one of those you know, anime is a a a, a and, and manga are mediums, but they're also in a sense like genres, right? Yes. There's so many conventions in them and within the, the, the sort of genres that exist within them that are so internally self-referential as to, for many people be completely opaque. Like, and, and that's, that's the, the big reason why I, why I wanted to do this kind yeah. of stuff, because I think to say like, 
to anyone who reads a lot of literary fiction, it's it's as much true as it is you want to roll your eyes and yell at somebody when they bring up like, oh, literary fiction, that's uh, middle-aged men having sex with the young women and taking advantage of them, <laughs> dads getting divorced and having midlife crises, uh, women only get to yeah. talk if they're being tokenized. And you're like, well, I mean, like, yeah, that happens more yeah, that often happens than lot. it should. <laughs> but also there's definitely like... You want to be like, one, there are some examples of that that are actually really good books, and it's their knockoffs that are bad. Like, they, they looked at a good story and can't actually replicate it as well as the original. And we remember the poor replication, like the bad simulacrum, not the good right. real ground. Or we see something where it's like, yeah, that's a dumb idea, but honestly, it's only like a chunk of this ecosystem, and it's not— like, yeah. you can talk about that stuff, but then, you know, when are you going to talk about, say, like, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which got rave write-ups, and Jennifer Egan's, like, a literary yeah. uh, literary hotshot now. Or, like, how can trying to tell someone, like, you know Toni Morrison writes literary fiction, right? And if you're going to say Toni yeah. Morrison is writing this cliche hack bullshit, it's like, motherfucker, she's the best novelist <laughs> alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, you know, uh... Yeah. Yeah. And, and so those those standard issues of like it's a medium. And so on paper, it's infinitely open. But in in practice, this is sort of we're all socialists here. Uh, the, <laughs> the materialist dialectic says that of, say, like a medium is that only the first couple instances are totally free. After you make one thing, whether yeah. you know it or not, you're always going to be in either in reaction to or even just in ecosystem with those earlier works and gradually you can start building like a statistical block of what's likely to happen and what tends to occur and when they Mm -hmm. invoke this how does it tend to happen because it takes a lot of people don't necessarily have a full grasp of the gravity of what creativity is and what Mm -hmm. being like a causally creative means because that's basically what we invoke when we say creativity even though that's insane (laughs) (laughs) the idea that someone can create ab nihilo with no reference and no connection to history or the past is you know talk to you know any anybody studying you know Studying any art form or a philosophy of art is is going to, you know, have something to say in that regard. But yet the, you know, plenty of people in in the I, I hate to put it as in the mainstream, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, like the like there, lay um, yeah lay audience members, and there's, there's nothing a, wrong with that. Like we are all yeah. lay audience members of something. But there's a somewhere there are default assumptions about about the the nature of creativity that are you know they're they're naive assumptions they're not they're not based on anything but having not ever really thought about it to the depth that we have because they're not insane yeah don't spend lots of time (laughs) thinking about this sort of thing i want to be very clear and peter will agree with me we both wasted a lot of money learning oh yeah (laughs) definitely 100 percent i have so much debt and i gotta tell you it has literally never helped me but (laughs) i like it (laughs) i I feel better as a person Um, (laughs) and that's it's one of the reasons why both like there's a reason why Nietzsche and Deleuze both agreed on the nation notion of like a true 
creative spirit in a way that gets and I'm thankful for Deleuze because prior to him, the Nietzschean idea of the creative Superman um, or Ubermensch got turned into a really like gross fascist thing that really isn't what he was saying. He was yeah. more pointing towards the effective impossibility of being truly creative in mm-hmm. any domain and that it is a startlingly uncommon, ultimately laudable uh thing it's sort of like and it's not that things don't have a root it's uh the key example that i use and the lose brings us up a bit as well so does adorno although he's a jackass about it (laughs) is think about mozart imagine traveling back in time and telling mozart uh to tell you to, to rate his works by how jazzy they are, like the jazziest to the least jazzy work. <laughs> Don't tell him what jazz is. Just <laughs> ask him. And he will look at you and probably respond in uh, Austrian. What do they speak there? They speak German there? Something. Uh, Whatever. Austrian. Is Austrian a language? Whatever. <laughs> Fucking uh, fuck Europe. They're not. They don't have any eagles there. So I don't need to respect <laughs> them. Fuck them. Um He's going to say some bullshit to you about how he doesn't understand and how he wants to go do blow or something. He didn't have blow, but he had he had Viennese blow, you know, whatever. Um, Yeah, whatever they were doing back then. Meanwhile, you go to travel forward in time to say John Coltrane or Miles Davis and ask them to rate Mozart's work based on how jazzy it is. They will be able to answer you. Mm -hmm. And that's because the rubric of this whole this whole dimension that work can mm-hmm. possess never at, didn't exist at some point though, not only did it come into existence, but it came into existence to such a degree that we could retroactively evaluate right. work right. prior to that category and see, see its existence. And at some point that elevation of jazziness that, by Coltrane's mid to late period, it definitely existed. Like he's one of those, Mm -hmm. there's a reason why he's brought up so frequently. He's a startling genius in music. Um, It had gotten to a point where we could look back in time and point at things that vastly predated jazz and go, oh, this had jazz, the jazz spirit in it. Um, And it's weird because you start sounding like you're speaking uh, amaterialistically, but but you're not really. It's just the only mm. way to say it is that this has the spirit somewhere in it. And it was at this point in time that all those spiritual components finally came together and then sometime later erupted. But mm. you can you can see them. And likewise, anime functions the same way. And we can turn our nose up at it as being subliterary uh, without value. But we've already learned in the West that something like young adult work D- mm-hmm. deserves critical attention maybe like it doesn't deserve to be lauded just because it's young adult fiction but it deserves to be you know brought to the table and uh, treated with rigor likewise yeah. genre fiction deserves to be treated with rigor um romances deserve to be treated mm-hmm. with rigor like not not the night kind of romance but the, like <laughs> the, the sexual kind because yeah. something like attending to the sexual desires of humanity is part of the human experience just as much as divorce and existential crisis is um and it's something that given that peter and i are both 30 uh at some point you realize it's easier to think that literature is supposed to be about these weighty things but that's because your heart is basically laden with those heavy weights you haven't learned how to 
juggle them at all. Not that everyone, not that you ever really learn how to juggle them well, but you get better at it or you die. Those are the two options. You get better or you die. Yeah. You also can go crazy. That's the third option. Um, and so, you know, as you go on, you start learning like, oh, no, there's a purpose to even there's an artistic purpose to even purely erotic work, because that's that's a part of being alive there's like what a workplace comedy doesn't have any more right to exist than an erotic work that's stupid um yeah no and you know and yeah you know different uh uh and uh, you know especially as you said you know being as we're we're getting out of our young adulthood uh you kind of start to lose some of you lose a lot of those pretensions of, you know, uh, uh, you, the, all, all those things that you like, but you, you don't really want to talk about liking because you're ashamed because you're not, a, not so much ashamed of them, but because you, you only want to be seen as liking the things with the big L literary value, right? You yeah. only want to talk about the things that have, uh, uh, some amount of to have that kind of weight because you feel like uh, uh, those are the things that are are worth engaging with, uh, and then you know I feel like the longer I've gone, the more I recognize that value of engaging with other things, even keeping up that same, uh, kind of, you know, we're doing like what we're setting out to do here. Let's look at, look at anime through, uh, uh, the, you know, the lens of, of literary scholarship and, yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, theory, because there's, there's value simply in that, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, not also saying there isn't value in simply uncritically enjoying a thing, but uh, they're, they're also, parallel values. It's, yes. I think we see that a lot in, in social media that sometimes it gets presented. And to be fair, it existed prior to social media. It's just it's in front yeah. of us now. It's easy, um, to, easy to spot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, uh, that sometimes we would look at, say, um, there was this like quiet war between uh, people who just wanted to enjoy something, the just let people enjoy things group, and then the like, let's critically dive in and engage kind of yeah. group. And uh, the reality, and most, I, I also want to make this clear that most people who deal with engagement, like critical engagement, do feel this way. It doesn't always get presented, but it is felt that way. These things are parallel to each other. They aren't yeah. really in competition. One for those of us who do this, we, we actually like the critical engagement. It's fun and fulfilling yeah. and exciting. Um, so it's not done in a in a cynical way. It's actually done because this is this is joyous to us in the same way mm -hmm. that sometimes just sitting down and taking in bullshit is joyous uh, to others or even to ourselves. I'm certainly there's certainly some <laughs> things where I'm like. I love Indiana Jones novels, like the the shitty ones. <laughs> They're shitty. I love yeah. them. There's a part where he pets a dinosaur that he found in Mongolia. Also, he goes <laughs> to the center of the earth three times. It's different every time he goes there. It's amazing. He fights witches more than once. Yeah, more than once. 
And like, I've also read Don Quixote, and I think that sometimes we get, we do witness sometimes that there is this sort of mode that people go in where they're either like, mm-hmm. uh, either they've always liked um, genre or like non-critically intense work. And mm-hmm. they've been they've been made unduly to feel ashamed of that. And then yeah, later in life, they yeah. feel they feel very defensive to the point of coming across as aggressive, mostly because of how they've been treated by people around them, or at least perceive they've been treated. Yeah, because yeah. It's one of those things that. where e- even if they aren't directly treated that way, if they're made to feel that way, if they perceive that they are viewed as lesser because of that. They're mm. going to react as truthfully as if they actually had. And that, that internal experience is still valid, even if it doesn't necessarily match an external one. Although it often does. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, you know, and it's not even, you know, sometimes it is someone's fault if if someone was a, a, a an overbearing douchebag about <laughs> taste, which, you know, uh, uh 20 something white dudes exist so that's always going to be a problem yep i've done that guy thankfully <laughs> yeah and but it's you know it, it is so it's understandable that some people might arrive at that kind of defensiveness to uh, a, a more critical dive especially if a more critical dive into something they like has some you know recognizes some unfavorable aspects uh even though, again, and as I'm sure, as once we get to our topic for tonight, we'll get into it's entirely possible to enjoy something in full re- recognizing of its many problematic aspects. Uh, uh, yeah, and that, that's something that, that we touch on here a lot, is that mm-hmm. a work being... So first, actually, finishing off the parallel that I was setting up before, other people sometimes can spend their youth in, engaged in that critically intensive work because uh, because of any number of reasons, and then can grow to resent themselves and how they used to be, and in doing so, shirk that to basically escape to yeah. to simpler meadows. And that that is the one that strikes me as a bit uncomfort or discomforting because that one feels disingenuous to the work that they're fleeing to as somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as either better or worse than the li- like literary work that they were engaging in before. And also it's disingenuous to, to those crowds because it's not, it's not simpler work. It's just treated differently. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's the one zone where like, just because you hate that you were a dick earlier in life doesn't mean that you getting mouthy about how Twilight or Harry Potter are actually great is worth anything because <laughs> yeah. there's part yes. of recognizing like i do think those are worthwhile things i think the fact that twilight as problematic as it is does represent and resonated with a real yearning yeah. desire in people and that's valid to interrogate we don't have mm-hmm. to like it like that's not what that's about it resonated mm-hmm. with people and a problematic thing resonated with people and that actually gives us more avenues to interrogate that's not right. a bad thing um, it brought to the surface something that we can actually now face. Uh, but, you know, you got you kind of have to know, like, when it's your place to, to hop into these things. Well, yes, yes, for sure. That's um, that's the thing you learn with age. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that um, we're going to we're going to take a break here and then we're going to apply this to uh, what if the moon was a computer?
So I want you to think about that. And uh, while while you contemplate the moon being a computer uh, across, of course, four dimensions, um, uh, we're going to play a song for you. This is uh, actually a uh, it's a track by a Japanese uh, like emo math rock band called Jocho, who absolutely incredible band. Um, if you haven't heard of them, honestly, until the vocals kick in, you're going to think it's any kind of uh, American or European uh, math rock emo kind of stuff, like post-Sunny-Day real estate kind of stuff with the twinkling guitars and the uh, extended, like, ad nine chords and all that kind of stuff. Just happens to be Japanese. I bring it up partly because, um, obviously, we normally highlight extreme metal or hardcore um, with this, but we wanted to use... The uh, the anime corner to uh, to expose specifically Japanese music, um, and while doing so, to also focus on either highlights of say like J pop or J rock, where it can it can get treated as sort of a stereotypical form, mm-hmm. but there's some immense quality stuff. I'm actually working on for a venue a um, a uh, an anniversary piece for a record of a guy named. Uh, Actually, I forget his name off the top of my head, but basically he helped found uh, he was a founding member of Yellow Matter Orchestra or Yellow Magic Orchestra, which is a massively influential Japanese site group. But also he developed uh, City Pop, which was the like biggest Japanese synth pop form in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, there, there's a lot of really great work, even in the, the mainstream of Japanese music that sometimes we will overlook. Anyway, I bring up this band because the track that we're going to play is actually the end credits for a Junji Ito horror uh, anime uh, collection that had a season uh, recently. Um, The track is called A Parallel Universe. Um, I'll let our sound guy, Gareth, uh, that's what he is right now. He's just the sound guy. He'll he'll come back and he'll he'll yell at me for that. But technically right now, he's just the sound guy. I'll let him decide uh, whether to play the short version, which is the one that's actually used as the end credits theme or the uh, the full version. Full version is only about five minutes, but incredible band. Uh, they just put out a record at the tail end of last year um, called The Beautiful Cycle of Terminal. Um, I'm more familiar with the record just before that called Days in the Bluish House, which is just an incredible contemporary emo and math rock record. Um, and they happen to have a song in an anime uh, of Junji Ito, of all things. Uh, I hate spirals.
So that was uh, Giocho um, with A Parallel Universe. Uh, Peter didn't hear the song. Uh, what did you think of it, Peter? I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a big fan. There was some clapping, and uh, a guy was talking for a little while. Uh, it didn't didn't really seem. I guess it's real avant garde. That's that's fair. So uh, <laughs> that's Peter's review. Hasn't heard the song, and he uh, he he shot a shot. We shooter shot here. We're shooters, and shooters. What do they do? They shoot. All over the place. So, uh, before I answer the question, uh, what happens on the moon as a supercomputer? I just want to say some words, and we're gonna we're gonna get back to these words. But I just want to say the words right now. Lord L. Malloy II's case files rail Zeppelin grace note. All right, I'm gonna say it a second time, and I want you to hold this in the back of your mind. Lord L. Malloy II's case files, Rail Zeppelin, Grace Note. Anyway, we're talking about fate today. So, uh, a little, a little background, not on fate, but on how, how I ran into it. Um, Peter was telling me about something called Fate's Day Night, and it sounded fucking terrible. And then he followed it with, you should actually watch Fate Zero, though. And he described that, and it sounded fucking terrible. Then he said, it's directed by the guy who did uh, Madoka, which is fucking amazing. And I was like, I'm in. I watched it. It was fucking terrible. I ignored it. <laughs> Later, I bought a video, or me and a roommate bought a video game. It was a Dynasty Warriors clone. I didn't know that it was also a Fate video game. In that game, the moon was a computer, and you had to play through four alternate timelines to fix reality, because the moon was a computer. Later, my girlfriend and I watched, had, fell in love with cooking anime, and we found an incredible one called uh, Emiya's Kitchen or something like that, or a uh, uh, meal with the Emiya family, something like that. I forget its name. Uh, and we're watching it, and we see a blonde-haired girl and she's wearing a blue apron-looking thing. And we're going on. And uh, uh, my partner goes, I think that's Saber. And I go, what? And we're, we're watching it. And they don't say anyone's name. And I'm like, that's weird. And they're like, I'm pretty sure that's Saber. And I'm like, why would you say that? This is clearly a regular cooking anime. I want to be very clear. It's a regular cooking anime. Nothing happens except cooking meals. Then uh, then she gets referred to as Saber, and I went, what the fuck? And then the edit ending credits play, and Kahulan is in them with his big blue hair. And that's when we found out we were watching a Fate spinoff. It was a cooking anime. Uh, so, so, Peter. <laughs> yes. Tell people, first give people a rundown on what Fate is, and then we're going to roll back and say, what it came from. So, <laughs> oh my God, where? So, uh, do you want uh, to explain Fate Stay Night first, the Grail Wars, or I'm, the Nasuverse? I'm, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start by uh, preface all of this by, as you did in the first part of this, uh, describing my experience. Ah, yes. Uh, getting into getting into the the wonderful world of anime. So. Uh, I, you know, I, well, for one, I'll prove you wrong. I never watched Dragon Ball Z when I was a kid. 
Yeah, fuck you, man. Uh, <laughs> not because not because of any des- specific desire not to. I didn't have cable. So Oh yeah, I forgot you lived I had in the no, fucking boonies. Yeah, so I had no access to it. So like I had friends who were really into it and but like I I never had a way of watching it. You know, I would watch Tsunami when I happened to be at someone's house uh who had cable and see bits and pieces of like, you know, my anime experience for years was like bits and pieces of Dragon Ball Z, uh, you know, Trigun, like pretty much whatever was on Toonami when I happened to be around. Uh, and then <laughs> obviously I was really into Pokemon and Digimon and cause that was stuff that was on Fox. So I could actually see it uh, until I was in high school and we got DSL so I could download things. Uh, and then I got into Naruto and that was that the beginning of the end for me because I was, I was torrenting, uh, fan sub Naruto episodes off the internet. <laughs> that sucks. Uh, and from that, I delved straight down into into the hole of bad uh, bad shonen anime. And then I I stumbled upon uh, I stumbled upon the first Fate Stay Night anime which was done in the 2000s by Studio Dean and is hot garbage. It, it was even at that point watching it, I was like, wow, this is terrible. I can uh, agree here now with your story. It is hot garbage. <laughs> it's hot garbage. <laughs> but but I, but at the time I was like, you know, at the time I was, you I liked too the garbage. was hot garbage. Yeah, so I was like, there are things in this I like. Oh, this is based on a visual novel by this group called Type Moon. And ho, oh, somebody did a translation of it. It's called Tsukihime. And I downloaded it. And uh, Oh, we're going here now? Yeah. So <laughs> I was I was at the time, you know, imagine imagine me as a a, you know, young you know, it was like 16 some years old. I, I was into, I, I loved anime, but I was also into a bunch of, of weird, like I, I, you know, it, like you, I always, you know, read way above my, my reading level. And by the time I was 16, I was reading a lot of, of, you know, some literary fiction, but at the time I especially had a real, a real edge towards, uh, uh, more adult genre fiction, uh, not like, uh, uh, your typical fantasy fair, but like I was into a lot of weird, like urban fantasy and horror and, uh, uh, similar work to, that was around the time I discovered Lovecraft for the first time. Uh, and, so me at that point, I discovered the work of Kanoko Nasu, the author of of, of Tight Moon and of Fate, uh, and who, the uh, the progenitor of the Nasu verse. Yes, his own his own urban fantasy horror universe, which I I I struggle still to describe exactly how I feel about. Kanoko Nasu's work. Kanoko Nasu writes really stupid things for smart people. Yes. Within everything that Kanoko Nasu, Kanoko Nasu taps into this the same kind of weird uh, uh, 
manic, esoteric uh, uh, symbolism that like uh, uh, that people like, you know, there there are parallels in a lot of things that he does to stuff that stuff like people like Grant Morrison do. Yeah, he understands um, real things about occultism and puts those into his work. But everything he writes is shown in garbage. It's, but it's, it's got that stuff in it. It's it's it reminds me of Alan Moore's comment that of like at the end of the day, the most advanced superhero comic is just going to be the most advanced boys book in the world. Yeah. Um, and he uh, is very unabashed with that. I, I can very strongly say that Nasu uh, emanates what I what I refer to as chaos energy. Um, <laughs> yes. And that, yes. We've we've all if you're following here, you've seen my posts. That is chaos energy. It's not cursed posting. No, this is a pedestrian form of conceptualizing it. <laughs> Notions of curses and blessings that envisions a divinity that has things like malice or love. No, it is. Be- we are beyond such things. We are in the realm of primal chaos, the creative void. It's like tendrils reaching out from darkness. Yeah. Like um, and and then you're getting into you you know so so. Me encountering that at that formative age, I went I went hard into into the Nasu verse, like uh, uh, what counted as I what you I guess you would describe as fandom at that time, which at, at that point was was nothing. It was the only things you had in English was the Tsukihime visual novel, which was really poorly translated and. Uh, and the bad Fate Stay Night anime. The visual novel of Fate Stay Night existed, but it had not yet been translated into English. Uh, I had to wait like three years before somebody did that, and I was able to read it. So uh, it's it's worth at this point. We've it, we've talked generally about it, but I want to talk specifically about a yes, core element so, of Fate, which are the Grail Wars themselves, because I think that's where, as it stands here, it sounds oh, like it, we're sort of riffing about anime in general, and now we're. Uh, like intellectually and now we're just sort of yeah. riffing on fate in the mean way. When we yes. tap into the grail wars, we get the first specific bit that you were talking about of needlessly cerebral English literature wank. Like what I mean is that if you have oh, an yeah. English degree, he's jacking you off with the grail wars. It's just <laughs> pure yeah, let me, BFA let me, masturbation. I, I, You're I, loving it, uh, but it's so fucking dumb. It's so fucking but, dumb, but, but it's, it's brilliant. So fucking dumb. But it's dumb. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's it's like he, he he tapped into this perfect nerve of where where the, you know the core the core bottom level premise of of every and and the reason why there's a bajillion spinoff of fate because you can make a bajillion different versions of this core premise and they all work on a certain level is is you've got you've got a bunch of you had a group of wizards right. Uh, and these wizards are fighting over the Holy Grail, which will will grant them grant them one wish. That's it's, it's a lie, but we'll get that's so, a, a side point in so, the complexity of the the setting. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you for a second. Okay. So obviously, to anyone listening here who has a background in analyzing literature and stuff like that, the Holy Grail and the symbolic value of it, um, one is inestimable. 
uh, when it comes to Western art. Like, it's just one of the most potent and latent symbols in Western canon. Two, he's completely aware of it and plays into all of those angles bit by bit. For no game, because it's shown in garbage, but just wanted to acknowledge that. This isn't a random, it's the Holy Grail. No, he's very deliberately in the Holy Grail of Western canon. And in-universe, that's like... A, a deal this, that symbolism is a deal that the the wizards in question are incorporating into their magical praxis like because a big, he knows this this stuff a big component of the magic the magic within that world is built around the notion of and this is like directly grant morrison's notions of and also chaos magic in general of you invoke an archetype or a symbol that is uh, birthed by humanity, but seems to gesture beyond humanity. Yes. And your magic comes from the invocation of those symbols and mm. the symbolic weight of them. It's not like Harry Potter magic. You're not tapping into gibberish primal life force, yeah. whatever, yada, yada. No, it's literally like the imaginarium or the collective unconscious. You're tapping into these archetype, literally grabbing these archetypal forms and making them yes. manifest. Because because the the premise of the Holy Grail war is in order to to decide who gets the Grail, you have seven wizards who summon seven what they call servants who are all uh, famous uh, historical or mythological figures uh, summoned in the form of seven specific symbolic classes uh, who then fight to the death and the last one standing. Uh, gets the Holy Grail and, and so, whatever they wish for. And so we have the replication of seven, which is the divine number of holy balance in Christianity. Mm-hmm. You have the notion of uh, the cup itself. So to elaborate, some of the occult symbology of the Holy Grail is it's um, the holy blood itself is also the blood of creation and the notion that the cup runneth over. There is an infinite amount of blood of Christ's blood within the cup because only Christ's blood can forgive sin. And given that there is a near infinite amount of of sin, you need a perpetual amount of blood, hence the infinite sacrifice of Christ. The cup holds that as it caught Christ's blood on the cross. And so the grail symbolizes, and this is in Western canon, mind you, not fate, Mm -hmm. although fate, so it's more that fate didn't invent this. Western canon invented this, and fate thought that will work in my dumb shonen bullshit, and something else (laughs) we'll tap into. it is the occult symbol for uh, primal creation. It's also an occult symbol of uh, yonic power, basically uh, the womb. Uh, this can, depending on how gross of a, an occult space you're in, this can be very gendered to the turfy notion of biological women. But it's more broadly been associated with the archetype of the yoni or the the womb, which is not a physical... Like, it's not a physical one. So, like, barren women still would be counted in that if they possess that energy. Even cis men, if they have creative energy, they're tapping into yonic energy. It's not—it's yeah. more symbolic rather than explicitly I, gendered. And obviously there are there are certain resistances to those symbols being tied even to genitals, which are very, very fair and I, valid. I, I don't know. I don't know if you are aware of how much into that creepy space that uh, fate gets with that uh, yonic symbolism. But boy, does oh. it go there! Oh yeah, no, we're gonna get there. Oh no, I know all about that. We're we're tiptoeing okay. around it, and people who know this will probably be tittering, going, "Are they gonna say it? We are gonna say it." Um, but so he's very well aware of that, and the notion of invoking specifically 
hero. So seven is also the number of virtues, mm -hmm. and each of the classes symbolize one of the virtues. Um, on top of being heroes, and so it's a hero, uh, a hero of some kind that symbolizes one of these virtues, and you have to have a balance of the virtues in order to attain the grail. And so it's literally uh, romances, which are um, the old, like, poetic uh, yeah. uh, genre of grail quests. It's literally yeah. grail quests, but so... rendered in fucking garbage shown in bullshit. Yeah. It is, like I Peter was think... saying, it is the brainiest, like, English degree nerd shit you know, jammed in idiot laser light garbage, it, and it, it's it, amazing, and it's stupid, and it's amazing. It contains, it contains, you know, so much. I mean, you know, f from things like a uh, 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 Grail quest. Uh, you know, you, you want to talk about talk about repeated Grail energy, yeah, Grail energy, Grail imagery. You know. I, nobody cares if we spoil anything from from any Fate series. I'm not even gonna. This is your spoiler warning at this point. You know, the if fact you need that spoiler warning, see just fuck off. <laughs> you know, this is my you podcast. Know, fuck you, spoiler we, people. We start. We start with Grail Grail imagery, and then we get things like, oh, the blonde girl is King Arthur. Uh, yeah, King Arthur. King Arthur's a a, a you know slight uh, blonde woman now. That's and and he even like leans into that in a in like and like tries to make it like make sense in universe, but you know, it doesn't. You, you have you have things like you have a whole a whole plot arc in in the the original visual novel about where how the the. I mean, I could I could go on for more than we have time on this podcast, but things like a whole a whole you know arc in the visual novel, you know, as a visual novel, it has multiple multiple plot arcs that you can follow, and an entire one of them is basically an investigation on the idea of the sort of mythical archetype of the hero in general, based on the fact that the protagonist is obsessed with the idea of being a hero and one of the other servants that they meet is literally him from the future who has, who did become a hero and has come back in time to kill his past self because now he is jaded and cynical about it. Like that's the kind of shit you have thrown in here. It's uh, so I want to, at this point, um, at this point, touch on another, another aspect of fate that I find interesting. So, Obviously, there's um, a concatenation of the genre elements. And as I brought up on previous episodes, and I'll bring up again here, um, one, it's one of the most key elements of surrealist literature, that you make a symbol so obvious that the brain doesn't register it as a symbol anymore. We just read it as gibberish. And if you put enough of these hyper-intensified symbols next to each other, or let's get boring and talk about occult shit, kids, sigils, if you put them next mm -hmm. to each other, it now no longer reads like a tale as much as just interconnected nonsense imagery. We're going to get into this mm -hmm. when we talk about Digimon, because Digimon <laughs> is literally a Gnostic tome now. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm not even kidding about that. Um, Peter knows, because he and I have talked about it. But... <laughs> so when you have enough of these hyper-intensified sigils placed next to each other, the mind no longer reads it as, oh, there's a symbolic function going on here. Instead, it just reads as 
this is all nonsense. This is just overwhelming. And it's not necessarily to say that it's more intellectually valid to do that than to say do a much more subtle and developed uh, approach. They're just simply different approaches. And we're going to at some point talk about um, some of the more subtle moves that uh, anime and manga have that get overlooked. But one of the other key things within fate is specifically and we touched on it a little bit, the notion of multiplicity. And this is also its biggest, because uh, it was very influenced by Western comics, eventually. Yeah. Initially, it wasn't. We're still going to get there. Um, <laughs> but uh, when it eventually decided to draw from Western comics, because it saw the superhero parallel a bit too clearly, and uh, the superhero team and all that, and Shonen in general has always had a feedback with American yeah. superheroes. It's been sort of an open secret that American comics have drawn from shonen work from roughly about the mid-70s forwards. Marvel, um, so if shonen kind of got developed with Astro Boy and founded there, uh, Marvel, uh, Japanese readers reading Marvel work and reading some of DC's work uh, in the late 60s, the early 70s, spurred kind of what we know is the, the prototype of uh, shonen now. And yeah. that got brought to America, and... They've been sort of in contact with each other ever since then. It's hard to find someone who makes one that is unaware of the other. You're really not yeah. going to find that, especially in 2019. Um, I know a number of people in the comics world, they all know of and follow or have followed different manga. And likewise, the people in the manga world, they're, um, because ultimately they do live in the same area. They, they communicate yeah. with different audiences, just like Central American and South American comics have their own vibe to them. And European comics have their own vibe and their mm -hmm. own canon. But you also are in contact with other people's work, like American writers and comic artists know of Mobius, even though he was a French comic writer yeah. because at an artist, because at a certain level, he's, he's fucking Mobius. Like you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna he, seek out a shit. Um, yeah. You know, you're not gonna de uh, deny yourself that level of, of, uh, of work or of influence just because it's outside of your, <laughs> you know, exact cultural context. And so, and so with fate, one of the things that they quite, that they deliberately did at a certain point, and this is half cash grab. I want to put that right out there. <laughs> it was explicitly a cash grab, but they also, again, because Nasu is a dumbass nerd like me and Peter, decided, what intellectual bullshit can I cram into a fucking cash grab? Uh, this is also very parallel to uh, Metal Gear Solid, which is uh, the world's greatest galaxy braining. <laughs> um, the notion of multiplicity crops up. Uh, in Marvel, it's the, the multiverse. In DC, it's the multiple crises and the way they relate to the multiverse, not just the multiverse itself. Um, and the crises are perhaps a, a better touch point. So the notion that every spin-off universe is a duplication of fate. It's not a different world. Yeah. It is a duplicate world. And what it is is an experiment of what if these things go a little bit different and you let it play out and you see how the symbols evolve based on that. And it's very much like a scientist playing with an experiment. Each one is a little tweak in little different areas. And if we're only a couple, then maybe you could have it in the main the main work. But the thing is the level of popularity of fate required a production of material far beyond what could easily fit in one show Bible. There's just no real way to do it. Yeah. So what they did was they made the Nasu verse. 
And now I'm going to, instead of explaining the Nazi-verse, I'm going to say a bunch of spin-off properties based on fate <laughs> that are all technically in canon with each other in a broader multiverse. Fate Stay Night, Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works, Fate Collide, Liner, Prisma, Ilya, Fate Zero, Fate Stay Night, Heaven's Feel, One Presage Flower, Fate Stay Night, Heaven's Feel, Two Lost Butterfly, Fate Extra, Fate Grand Order, Fate Apocrypha, Fate Apocrypha, by the way, is a collection of subseries, Fate Strange Fake, Fate Extra Last Encore, Carnival Phantasm, Today's Menu for the Emia Family, and I told you we were going to get here. Lord Elmoloy II's Case Files, Rail Zeppelin, Grace Note. These are all uh, these are all either spin-off games or spin-off shows, or games that got spin-off shows, shows that got spin-off games, that all function in a collective multiverse, riffing on these same general concepts of the invocation of archetypal form, and each in some of them, the same hero will get invoked as multiple different classes, and each class represents a different archetypal element of that person getting raised to the nth degree, in sort of a Nietzschean sense of being an ubermensch, um, which is sort of Nietzsche, Nietzsche's idea yeah. is the classic idea of the superhero, like literally the comic book version. You take some element and you intensify mm. it to the nth degree, and now they're a superhero. For Nietzsche, he had specific ones that he was looking at, but that same general. For I mean, that's why it's not a, it's not an accident that Nietzsche wrote about the Superman and Superman is the most well known comic hero of all time. That's not that, that wasn't a fluke. <laughs> yeah, not, they didn't. That wasn't an yeah, accident. They didn't yeah. <laughs> like that. That was deliberate. Um, yeah, they, that was they fucking right. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it was through that um, one of the ones that I uh, had run into was uh, Fate Extra. Uh, I think it was, I think it was Fate Extra. Um, no, that was uh, Dungeon uh, Crawl. Extella, I think, is the yeah, one that's, that's the one. Dynasty Warriors clone, Fate which is, is itself a sequel to two separate uh, to to Fate Extra, which were two separate PSP RPGs. Yes, and when well, he one of says which never got localized, <laughs> when he says they're sequels, they're sequels. Because it's Fate Extella, it is a separate universe, but the same events happened. But the thing is, there are different endings for Fate Extra, and this one only goes off of one of them. Now, Fate Extella has four timelines, and in all of them, the computer is a moon. Or no, the moon is a computer. And it's the same moon is the same computer. It is a four-timeline four large moon that, in three dimensions takes up the same space as the moon, but in, uh, uh, is calculating. So basically that reveals one of the core conceits of fate, which is that computer, the umbral star within the moon, is calculating the symbolic values of those universes, hence why you have to play through them, because it's like the rest of the fate, uh, the fate franchise, each universe is sort of a calculation of what happens when these symbolic or archetypal values are invoked, mm -hmm. yearning towards the grail, the great unlimited creative energy. Um, it's, it's a nihilistic uh, concatenation of uh, genius art moves um, <laughs> because it gestures to nothing. It's, yeah, it's, but on the same hand, by gesturing to nothing, it's creativity for its own sake, which makes it, in a lot of ways, like the the dumb height of creativity. Yeah, you know the it's it's like 
so much so much of what nasu puts out in general is like uh it, it you know again making the 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 parallel to to grant morrison it's like nasu is constructing a hyper sigil in his work except the the sigil is is meaningless noise it's not actually pointing towards anything it's just there to be large and symbolic uh it's it's you know uh, an exercise in in intellectual occult masturbation and uh, while on while on one which, hand uh we're going to talk about masturbation in a second here <laughs> while on one hand it's it's easy to dismiss the stuff as masturbation and mean that in a derogatory oh, way yeah. i don't I don't disagree with that. And but the thing is, I think me and you know we're not saying that in a derogatory way. We're not yes. trying to belittle it. But other I, we do like, see that frequently. That like oh, I find it I, I find it fascinating the level of of uh complexity and depth that uh uh Kinokunasu will go to for the sake of a a Dynasty Warriors clone or a visual novel or a, <laughs> a, a second rate low budget RPG or a, a cell phone gacha game like he's right? doing now. And he puts work into that shit. There's no reason he should be putting There's this no work in. There's no reason he should None put that much work They're in. all cash grabs. First and, and foremost, most, they are cash grabs. But and like, he and just it, sits down and he's like, no, I don't fucking care. It doesn't and, matter. Because <laughs> that ties into like, uh, you know the the reason for a, a verse existing here ultimately is not because of of any any real desire to, to tap into that symbolic value it's because of the the you know hunger in the market particularly in japanese market for uh uh spin-offs involving particular uh, characters and archetypes that people like. Everybody loves Saber, and they want as much Saber content as they can possibly get. So Nasu will give you 12 different versions of Saber that you can consume. Uh, but even though he doesn't have to, he could just make a billion spinoffs, because plenty of series do that. But he ties them together. He puts in that work to do that that extra bit of okay, but I'm going to create I'm going to create a reason for all of this other stuff to exist and tie into each other, so you assholes can go delving into my lore. You know, <laughs> we, like I, creating TV, uh, creating TV tropes, traps. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like he doesn't have to do that, but he does, and he does it at a level that he obviously is you know he knows what he's doing at a, a deep enough level that it makes it fascinating that this is what he's this is what he's coming out with and like, I, I i've a i've i have a a point that elaborates on this specifically mm -hmm. so in a lot of ways is it masturbation yes but we have to think about what we mean when we say that. Now, I, I know what it means when we yeah. refer to something as intellectual masturbation, but an element that we don't get and whatever, we're all we're all English majors here. Let's all just <laughs> fucking do it. What's an element of masturbation that gets subtracted when we talk about it in that derogatory sense? Joy and pleasure. <laughs> it feels like, real good. Like it's 
it, it, it's like it's a jokey way to say it, but it's it's true. Yeah. Like it, we don't we don't knock like we wouldn't refer to actual physical masturbation as a stupid waste in the way that we refer to intellectual masturbation, mm-hmm. because at some point we know that, no, there is it's not the only thing, but no one really thinks of regular masturbation as why you get up in the morning. That's depressing. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> but it feels good. It's nice. Like you, it's, it's a joyous thing. You can make it creepy and weird and gross, or it can just be like this, this thing, or maybe you do it with, with a partner and it's this lovely uh, thing. Like we don't, we know better as adults than to treat sex as like this icky, gross thing. Only weird creeps do because it's something that it, it's a blank slate. And you can make it very easily a joyous thing on your own or with a partner or with a set of partners. It's, it has that element there. A second, a second notion to this is fate in a lot of ways like this. And it's endemic of anime in general, which is why I wanted to start here. We had, we had a bit of a discussion before we did this of do we start with the most weeby thing which the one i could think of that i could have a fruitful discussion with peter about would be fate or the least weeby and we had we had a number of notes and a number of ideas and we're probably going to come back to those but peter strongly encouraged my worst instinct to go with the most (laughs) and i think that's ultimately good because it sets this is endemic of the broader thing that this isn't apologetics this isn't trying to find the scare quotes the good anime or the good manga we're trying to look at the core of what it is and how it functions and even the parts that i myself will find myself turning my nose up at and go no i don't have to like it personally to acknowledge value there and acknowledge like oh here are the moves that go on there here's the mechanics you know that there's something there and you know obviously if you're open enough you can look at that and maybe even walk away with a kind of appreciation um as like my girlfriend and I found that today's menu uh, on uh, for the Emiya family is literally it's just a cooking anime spinoff where it's set in a parallel universe after Fate's Day Night where everyone that died is not dead for some reason. They've never mentioned it because it doesn't matter. But literally one of the main characters who canonically loves to cook in the show this is just about him acquiring an gr- ingredient, thinking about meals he wants to make, acquiring the ingredients in a market, and then it shows – it doesn't do it like Food Wars where it's like a dumb, cheap, shonen, orgasmic thing. It just shows like really well animated, oh, here's how you chop these things. Here's how long you boil it. Here's how you season it. And it like teaches you how to cook as it's showing this cooking. And then the end part is always him and his servants and the servants of others enjoying the meal together. And they literally release one episode a month and have for 13 months now with no real sign that's going to stop. And each one is themed after what would be seasonal for that month. So in the winter ones, there was some there was some squash stuff that they made. They he, uh, they made a Christmas celebration one that also involved uh, – they had a New Year's one where they were eating oranges because that's a, a Japanese um, lucky tradition because uh, they're – the the Mekons have, uh, which are the traditional Japanese orange that grow there, uh, are homophonic with a word for luck. So you just sort of also round things in general in uh, East Asian culture have a rough association with luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just this wonderful little pocket thing that why does it exist? Because it would be delightful. Um, yeah. And why did we like, why are we doing it with these bits? I don't know. 
Because we can. We're a tight moon. We have the money. It's one of the most gorgeously animated anime yeah. that I've seen. And they so lovingly animate all of that food just because. Yeah. And people 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 lap that shit up. It's so popular. Yeah. It's especially like, among the fans. I mean, you know, I guess especially too because it in in presenting it in such a like slice of life idyllic form it's kind of a cathartic thing considering that the the you know the the story that it's that it arises from is very not idyllic yeah. and happy and it, <laughs> you know it, it it presents a a you know, An idyllic possible counter. world where nothing is bad in comparison to the world that it came from where everything is bad and there is no version where all of those people are alive and happy. <laughs> like <laughs> we we have we have in fate in all of those spin-offs a really interesting example of uh, why does drama exist? Why do we tell stories about people that don't exist and problems that never happened? And that's where we get really to the crux of like what is intellectual masturbation especially in fiction because none of these things are real tales if we wanted to learn yeah. something non-fiction exists people are writing real stories about real people all the are, time are you trying and, to tell me that wizards aren't real Landon? wizards are real and they <laughs> love to jack off on sigils that's what i've learned um but uh we like we sometimes use this as a, a tarred brush uh, to tar work that we don't appreciate. And it's fine not to appreciate work. And even to be fair, it's even fun to slag work. Like I'm not I'm not telling you not to slag shit. I'm a hater. I love being a hater. But <laughs> I'm honest about it. I'm just being a hater. Like at some point you have to like cut the bullshit. Like um yeah, it's fun. And, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's fun to be a hater. Like just just if if hating is your joy, fuck it. Be joyful, man. Um, but <laughs> the other thing is sometimes uh, the line between something being intellectual masturbation or not is the cleverness of the person it's in the hand of. Mm. If you can make it relevant, it now isn't masturbation. So a lot of times I read this more as a, an implicit acknowledgement that someone isn't clever enough to make these things valuable. We run into this a lot if you study philosophy where the general like poo-pooing <laughs> thing one the dumbest most yeah. wrong one it's all dead white men which basically means every woman queer person or person of color that ever wrote philosophy you've retroactively said isn't a philosopher yeah. which like, is shitty um yeah, Audre Lorde <laughs> is a philosopher um uh, Angela Davis is a philosopher um Franz Fanon is a philosopher um yeah. and it goes further back than that um the second one is that it's all useless and it's all masturbation and yeah, that navel gazing and you wind up going like how do you arrive at self-care how do you arrive at critique of capitalism how do you arrive yeah. at a queer theory a theory of queerness that is philosophy mm -hmm. gender yeah. studies is a philosophy the development of feminism is philosophy like these have very practical bits and they're the people who founded these concepts aren't unaware of the vast history of philosophy they they cite it frequently you yeah. can you can see it in their works if you sit down and read them now you don't make them because you think every person ever needs to sit and cite those works but they're there 
to sometimes inspire the people who do think like that, because that's that's another mode. Not everyone thinks the same. Not everyone needs the same stimuli to arrive at the same thoughts or actions. And sometimes we will and intellectualists can do this, too, where they we look down our nose sometimes at things that we really shouldn't. Because it comes down to it's a mode that isn't how we think. And so we think it's yeah. useless or valueless. You know, there, there's a value in, in certain kinds of modal thinking that is not, you know, the, the, the value is instrumental, not inherent. There's nothing yes. about the philosophical canon that makes it better. But it's extremely useful if you're trying to do thought in a particular mode when it's like, well, you know, here's like four other people who wrote about that, like same thing. You don't have to form those thoughts from scratch now, you know? Yeah. yeah you can suddenly which, go, Oh, I, uh, I have, I have actually the shoulders of giants to stand on right yeah, here. That's amazing. Thank you. It's extremely <laughs> useful. <laughs> and so that's sort of the bizarre, the bizarre core of fate is that it's this really fucking hackish, dumb, worthless shonen crammed with these really excellent examples and excellent like performances of some really like deeply mechanical uh literary and uh mythic concepts you know it it invokes it it invokes explicitly so many of these extremely you know uh, uh uh culturally and symbolically and philosophically resonant figures and concepts, you know, and does arguable amounts of things with them, you know, uh, uh, I mean, we, here's, here's the short, the short version on this podcast and Peter's included in this as well. I, 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 quietly vouched for this before inviting him on we love professional wrestling you can't you can't like professional wrestling and not like anime because professional wrestling is anime in the flesh it's true what is brock lesnar but the berserker lubu No, I mean, you and, can, like, in in a quite literal way, the the same archetypal movements and the same over the top, like, yeah. it's so idiotic that it becomes genius again. Mm-hmm. It's so in your face that you can bury these subtle things, and you'll pick up on the things that you think are the subtle thing that they're not handling subtly, and miss the fact that it's all the work. The the fact that you're catching right. on is planned for. Is part of it. Yeah. The fact that you're trying to outthink them. And then they swerve you at the last second. That's because they had you in the palm of your hand the whole time. Mm-hmm. People like Nasu have been making manga and anime for a very long time. This is not new to them. He mm-hmm. isn't making so many different. He isn't making dungeon crawlers and visual novels and Dynasty Warriors clones and anime and a cooking anime <laughs> and slice of life stuff like on a fluke. This is because mm-hmm. he he knows this world. He's been he's a professional who lives and works in this world and it's all a work. That's the big lesson from wrestling. Mm. It's all a work. And yeah, it's just he has this like incredible it's similar to it's not the level of Vince McMahon, but it's similar to that kind <laughs> of thing where it's this body that you 
you couldn't have deliberately made it. You have to follow the gut. Yeah. He, and, and yeah, like, you know, setting out, uh, cause you can see that you can, you can see that in the history of, of, uh, uh, Tight Moon's existence from, you know, the early 2000s when it was just like two fucking college kids when they made their first visual novel, you know, Nasu and his artist who doesn't know how to draw normal human proportions uh, and moving through sudden colossal success and, and just kind of rolling with every opportunity that presents itself until now it's, you know... I mean, shit, there was a I, I saw a picture of of Saber on a fucking billboard in L.A. during uh, uh, AX last year that made me like have a, a, a minor existential crisis. Like, why is this thing from my fucking teenage years popular now? What that is the sucks. fuck with this? That sucks in a bad way. It's very bad seeing and that. It's, it's really incredible because and here's where we reveal it. The first Fate object made, and if, if you're watching Fate and you're looking at it and you're going, ah, it's, it's a bit pervy with the way that the women are dressed and things like that, just like a lot of anime. It seems like American comics to have, to have a misogyny problem with the way that it depicts women. That's because it started as an gay. That's right, baby. Was, the first Fate was an erotic visual novel. Yep. You could moon. fuck King Arthur. Tight Moon got their got their start making making Arrogay, and Fate Stay Night was their second one. It was uh, a it it was a long process of a couple of years of they would get the ability to expand Fate and like make some OVA or something like that, and they'd get told, "Well, yeah, we want to make it for adult audiences, but it can't be like explicit." So they tone it down a little bit, and then they're like, "Yeah, we want to give you a short TV show, but it can't. It's got to be like less explicit than an OVA, because you know those are going direct to DVD, and you know we're going to show this on TV." So they toned it down a little bit, and bit by bit, they arrived at Fate as they know it. And then they made a wild gamble and basically made it difficult to legally acquire the erotic stuff and hard pushed a new show and it took off. And then because it took off, that funny effect happened where you can't keep something very secret from a large number of people for long. And it became known again that you're supposed to jack off to King Arthur. Which – and to be fair, I will interject there too that in in the original Japanese market – uh, it was never really a secret. Like yeah. the the idea of an Arage getting a, a, a anime adaptation or whatever, where they just cut the porn parts out, happens all the time, and it's just an accepted thing uh, for better or worse. It, uh, it but becomes in, the equivalent of finding out that like Game of Thrones is actually based on a series of books. The initial. The initial response from yeah. audience, from mainstream Japanese audiences, it's going to be like, "Oh, I didn't know that." And then some of them will go, "Ah, oh, it's nerd shit," and some of them will go, "Yeah, maybe I want to jack off to King Arthur." <laughs> I mean, I've always the, the, my my uh, my thesis has always been that the the reason why the the fate core fate premise is is will sell forever is because he figured out a way to let you kiss famous historical figures yeah. and there they, you can sell that you can sell that idea forever people you can make have a, been horny forever 
Yeah, that that will people will never not be horny for famous legendary figures. That's it's, just always going to be a thing. And there's the lots of them out there for you to be horny for. Somewhere out there is a mythological figure that you want to fuck. And, and Nasu is determined to get them to you. And that's where we're going to end the episode. <laughs> so this has been our discussion of fate. Uh, come back next week when we'll talk about fucking something. Um <laughs> Uh, to close out, I'd like to do another song from Joe Show, just because I really want to hammer home that this band is very good, and you should listen to Joe Show. Um, I'd pull one from their most recent record, because that's the one that they're probably promoting, but I'm less familiar with it. So instead, I want to say, uh, uh, pull a track from Days in the Bluish House, which I just thought was an incredible record. Uh, this one's the title track, The Bluish House. Um, it's... A really, a really gorgeous song. It's really uh, endemic of what it is that that they do as a band, and a really strong example of uh, a band making Japanese rock music that isn't sounding like either the wildly underground Japanese psych or Japanese prog that uh, or noise that normally gets broadcast. And it's great stuff. Don't not knocking that, but also doesn't sound uh, as much like what you would imagine the stereotypical J-pop or J-rock thing is, which we will get to later because there is some good shit there too. But this is The Bluish House by Giocho. Skill.